You are listening to the Salem First Hunting and Fishing Podcast. Our mission is to connect with and actively engage Western Oregon outdoorsmen. Like, I want to encourage people to have a positive life change from the outdoors. Yeah. It's not just killing something. One question we ask on this show is, what's your true motivation behind your life in the outdoors? What's going on deep down inside of you when you're engaging with hunting and fishing? I believe that God gave us the ability to do this. That's one way to connect with God. This is where the spiritual piece really comes in. We are a part, we have a profound impact on our resources. I don't know how to answer that rather than to say it's, it's just all about Jesus. Listen to this podcast, join our Facebook group at Salem First Hunting and Fishing Club, or participate in any of our club fishing trips, shooting events, or hunting trips. Welcome to the show. We're so glad that you tuned in, and uh, we hope that you learned something valuable from today's episode. We're recording here in Salem, Oregon, and one of our goals is that we want to provide content specifically geared for the most overlooked segment of the outdoorsman community. Uh, That's me saying that as a Pacific Northwest hunter and fisherman. We chase Roosevelt elk. We pursue blacktail deer in the woods. We fish on the Willamette for smallmouth. All these kind of specific pursuits um, that don't really get talked about too much. So those who spend the fall and the winter swimming around in the wettest woods in the lower 48, you found the show for you. Another thing that we do is we have these gatherings and meetings where we try to connect Western Oregon outdoorsmen with each other. So be a part of that community. You can join us for club fishing trips, hunting trips, and shooting events. Up next, we have a rifle sighting day at the end of this month, the weekend before Archery Elk kicks off. That's August 26th. We're going to try to get everyone shooting straight so that way we're ready for rifle deer season when that comes up in October. And bows are welcome. Um, I can't promise that anyone is a professional bow tuner, but if you want to come, bring your bow, bring your rifle, and we'll just uh, get shooting straight. So to sign up, go to our Facebook group and then find the event page, and or you can contact us directly and we'll get that figured out. It's pretty low-key, just a bunch of people getting together and uh, trying to fix up our rifles. Yeah, another thing that we do once a month, every fourth Monday, we get together as a group of guys it's called shop talk so we hang out in this huge shop we talk about fishing hunting stuff we've been doing lately we grill out we make some really good food Uh, we bring in keynote speakers jay yellis he's been on our show professional bass fisherman so i mean we have a lot of good conversations uh around those monday nights so if you guys want to come out take part in that hit me up on instagram at the doc knocker you can uh, (laughs) the doc knocker (laughs) you can hit brian up as well you can go to our facebook page like us subscribe whatever you gotta do but come out it's a fun time this next shop talk so on the 28th we're actually going to have a fishing swap meet so if Mm -hmm. there's old gear that you want to bring out sell maybe some lures that you haven't used that are fresh in the box i'm going to be bringing my uh my zombie hen turkey decoy that was featured in the last episode of the podcast because i just want to get rid of that thing it does not work (laughs) we've been getting like 70 to 100 guys at that haven't we it's been pretty cool so in this episode we're going to talk about eric and i's week in the outdoors we're going to talk about the OHA Turn In Poachers program, and we have on, amazingly, <laughs> John Barklow, the Sitka Big Game Product Manager. One thing that we do, I didn't warn you about this, um, we we get five icebreaker questions, and they're rapid fire. Love it. So you, you can go into detail if you want, or you can just give a yes or no. So here's the first one, fishing or hunting? Hunting. Bow or rifle? Bow. Deer or elk? Elk. Alaska blacktail or eastern whitetail? Ooh. I'll say Eastern Whitetail because I've never killed a big one back there yet. Eastern Whitetail. Okay. All right. If you had to pick one thing in your kit to invest in, and for some reason in this hypothetical situation, you couldn't invest in anything else, would you buy boots or a jacket? Uh, boots. Boots all the way? Yeah. What do they say? Keep Take care of your feet and they'll take care of you. Isn't that the whole thing there? 100%. If you can't walk, you can't do anything. Awesome. Well, it's an honor to have you on, John. We're excited to hear uh, your input. It's time to share a couple of hunting and fishing stories from your hosts. Uh, We're not going to be able to go into too much detail because we actually didn't get a chance to record an episode last month for a couple of reasons that we'll get into. Uh, That means that in August, you'll get two episodes, but I've basically been summertime activities shooting my bow getting ready for elk season fishing um i put up my trail cams right before fire danger shut down the woods so i got just by the skin of my teeth this time normally i go out in early june but didn't get up there till july this year but then sort of the big my wife and i had kid number two (laughs) so i am six days in 
to, you know, that messes with your sleep schedule, messes with your everything schedule. But, you know, that's sort of the, the big things going on that sometimes makes the show hard to keep it going on a regular schedule. Well, and you had a girl. So and I had a girl. That's yeah. That's going to just, that's a game changer right there. Yep. So I have a boy and a girl now. Outstanding. But yeah. Yeah, I guess, uh, let's see, since we talked last time, I've been uh, fishing quite a bit on the river, uh, Lake Charles, went out with uh, my then fiance. She caught her first bass here in Oregon, so that was pretty fun, uh, just getting to take her out and do that. You, you kind of dropped a big hint there about what happened to you in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, so let's see, three Fridays ago, I got married. Wow. <laughs> Congrats. Thank you. So that was another reason why we couldn't talk sooner. Um, so we get we got out. Uh, we've been taking her out, getting her out fishing and stuff. Uh, I've also been uh, pretty involved with the Cast for Kids Foundation. If you haven't heard about it, go to castforkids.org. It's a foundation that, you know, takes kids out that they have de- developmental and sp- special needs and we get them out on the water sometimes we'll go crabbing other times we'll go bass fishing trout fishing whatever uh but at the end of the day you know we really celebrate them they get a a little plaque to go home with our next event is coming up september 9th at hag lake in gaston oregon um it's going to be presented by pacific seafood so you guys if you want to go to castforkids.org and check that out get signed up if you want to come out uh, and participate and or volunteer that's how you got to do it that's kind of in a nutshell what i've been up to awesome man well lots of good stuff going on there looking forward to what august has in store Let's go ahead and talk about our local news story that we'll touch on. Uh, this is pretty cool. For those of you who aren't aware of the Turn In Poachers program or the TIP program, it's, uh, I didn't know this until recently, but Oregon State Police works with Oregon Hunters Association to provide this service where if someone sees either suspicious behavior or they see poaching behavior going on, they can call this TIP hotline and uh, report it. That way the state police can enforce easier. And I I think that's really cool. I've always just thought it was an Oregon State thing. But when I found out that OHA actually has their hand in making this possible, here's the cool thing. Just recently, they increased the rewards for the TIP program by a lot. So if you turn in a poacher who gets uh, caught, I guess would be the best way to say it, then you get money for that. And we'll talk about the award money and, and what it went up to, but in 2020 alone, they dispersed over $20,000 to people who turned in poachers. So that's a that's a pretty good hunk of change. Another thing to remember is that in Oregon, we don't have traditional game wardens in the same way other states do. The Oregon State Police handles all wildlife law enforcement, so we don't have like a separate, like they have a wildlife division, but it's still Oregon State Police. It's not like a separate entity. But let's look at some of these. So bighorn sheep, if you reported a bighorn sheep situation, you used to get $1,000. They bumped that up to $5,000. So that's five times more. That's a lot. I was looking at elk went from $500 up to $2,000. And part of that too is bringing in this other agency that can go out and get funds and bring them to the table as a resource. Well, they added a few too, which is super interesting, like spotlighting. If you see someone spotlighting, they'll pay you $500 to report it. Another interesting one they added, unlawful lending or borrowing of game tags. So if you say that you live in state when you don't and you buy a residential license, $500 right there just for that. I wonder what the the fines look like on the other side of that, you know? Yeah. If those have quadrupled or whatever, in some instances, you know, doubling it, but uh, it'd be interesting. Do you know what I noticed in this, which might be kind of a, a hat tip? Um, mm-hmm. the rates for bear, cougar, and wolf only went up by, oh, they didn't go up at all. <laughs> they left the bear, cougar, and wolf reward the same, uh, $300 there, but they increased everything by five, you know? Yeah. It's kind of funny there that they made that choice. So today our special guest, John Barklow from Sitka Gear, uh, we have him here today to kind of drop some knowledge on us. Uh, not only does he have a, a vast background, you know, as serving in the military, yeah, whatever your title is, John brings a lot of experience from his past 
in the Navy and spending a lot of time at detachment Kodiak, Alaska as a SEER cadre instructor. Is that how you would? Yep. Yep. That, that'll, that'll do it. <laughs> so you're, you're really training guys fresh out of buds. They're coming up there. Uh, you're, you're teaching them how to survive in cold weather and austere environments. Tell us a little bit about that and, uh, how much time you got to spend there and what brought you to Sitka? Yeah. So I think I, I spent almost 14 years up there. I went up there after nine 11. We, we had to figure out how to train guys and get them into Afghanistan that first winter, first or second winter. Um, all the knowledge in special operations had kind of retired, so to speak from the cold war. So, you know, the gear and the training, it just didn't exist. And so we had to figure out how to, how to get people up and running so that, uh, you know, the environment didn't become a bigger enemy than, you know, than the actual enemy. So went up there, did that. And honestly, guys, the, the environment is very, for the most part, it's very similar to the environment you guys live in, you know? So we were talking before we got on air about chasing blacktail and rosies. And, and honestly, I've done a lot of that. And, um, I, I think I, you know, maybe got a few things I can, I can pass along, but, uh, yeah. So I ended up retiring after, you know, 26 years of, of being in the Navy and wanted to get into another profession. I wasn't looking for a job. I was looking for another career that I was passionate about. And I figured it was either uh, dog toys or the hunting industry. So I just got really lucky. Didn't know it at the time. Sometimes just not knowing all the hurdles in front of you is a good thing. And long story short, I ended up becoming the the first ever big game product manager at Sitka. And what I didn't know at the time, but I, I quickly found out is it was an 11 month process. I initially got turned down and then I told them to keep me on their short list. But what I didn't know is I was taking the job from one of the founders of the company. So it wasn't something that they were just going to pass on kind of to anyone. Um, and so I've been doing that almost nine years now. And so, you know, the, 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 the title's change and it doesn't really matter. I mean, I do focus on big game specifically. I'm also the, the senior product manager of all of hunting. So, you know, I don't just work on big game and build those systems out, but I also try to look at the broader product assortment and, you know, future roadmaps and technologies for big game waterfowl and whitetail. So man, and the industry has changed a ton in nine years. It, it's uh, uh, night and day. And all for yeah, all for the better. But but night and day from when I started, yeah. I'm sure you have so many funny and awesome stories to tell. But share with us just one of your favorite hunting or fishing, maybe just even an outdoor experience. Well, I, I think kind of my young formative years when I was t trying to teach myself all this, you know, just w what I call just like the care and feeding of the hunter, right? like just being able to go out and clothe yourself and set up a tent and navigate and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, some of my best hunting memories are when I was really just young, trying to teach myself and was completely unsuccessful in any kind of way of actually killing a deer. Sure. Yep. <laughs> but actually in some regard, like that's what made it so awesome is like there were no, there was no pressure on myself. There was no preconceived notions, but you know, you jump ahead. My two brothers uh, came up to Kodiak one August and we were going to hang out for a week, but I wanted to take them blacktail deer hunting. And so we went out uh, early one morning, crossed a creek, got up into the Alpine, which is where the deer are at that time. They're still velvet. My two brothers were able to each shoot a buck probably within 10 minutes of each other, um, which was incredible, right? So they yeah. killed nice bucks. Yeah. We quartered and packed up all the meat. We're walking down. And as we're coming back down to the river, um, we, we didn't run into like close, but probably within five, 600 meters, um, three brown bears, wow. kind wow. of juvenile bears. So think like three, four years old, just yeah. hanging out together. And, and, and that was just a really great way to end, you know, that particular part of that trip, um, you know, with bloody meat on our backs and, 
coming down and beautiful day and running into those bears. It was just, I, I'd say from a hunting perspective, that's probably my, my most memorable. Wow. That's awesome. So were they looking for your gut pile or were they just unrelated, just kind of cruising around? Um, they, they could have been, I mean, it would, they were probably half three quarters of a mile from those gut piles. Um, I don't know which, I don't remember which way the wind was blowing. I guarantee you they found them. Yeah. yeah. That's a lot of noses to try to trick. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So up up there, is it pretty normal to double up or was that like a super unique experience to get two deer? No, it's pretty common to double up. Well, that's, that's awesome. And I've been it. on trips where, you know, we've tripled up. I shot one with the bow, guy shot two bucks with rifles. Wow. <laughs> it, it's pretty common, or at least it uh -huh. what it's like anymore but it probably still that good so when you were up there did you get to have a resident tag or how did that oh work? yeah yeah as a, as a member of the military you can claim any state you want as your home of residence so moving up there uh at one point i was an oregon resident because my wife is from the portland area but oh really okay. yeah but it made sense to become an alaskan resident and then get all those you know all those benefits um hunting for sure yeah yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that is cool. I like it. Well, that's a good place, Eric, to talk about why you originally reached out to John yeah, before so, we even podcasted. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of, you know, obviously, John's been on a lot of podcasts. Um, obviously, I'm a big supporter of Black Rifle Coffee, what they do, and just who they are as people. Um, John's been on their show a few times, as well as Andy Stump, John Dudley. So guys I really look up to, and, and John you're one of those guys too. So when I had heard that he had spent some time at detachment Kodiak, my, my grandfather's ship that he commanded back in the day was, uh, in port there kind of essentially trying to figure out what they were going to do with it. And, you know, eventually it made its way down to Juneau before, um, being sold to the Chinese for scrap metal. <laughs> isn't a very glorious ending, but no, but that's actually how I reached <laughs> out to John. I was like, Hey, have you heard of this, the ship Storis? It's relatively infamous yeah. ship within, uh, not only the Navy, but the coast guard. So he, he commanded, uh, that ship as well as, uh, another one called bittersweet. And, you know, he spent a lot of time on the Pacific before he retired. He was a world war, World War One and two vet. So yeah, just, he had a lot of cool stories. So I had wondered, oh, I wonder if John Parklow ever saw the ship. Yeah, I, I can't remember. I mean, it's very famous and it, it saved a lot of lives and, and boats over the years. I mean, a long, long career. Uh, I don't know if they actually decommissioned that when I was still up there or soon thereafter when I left in 2014. But yeah, no, it was definitely there and in service for, a, for quite a long time. Yeah, definitely a cool ship. Uh, if any of you listeners out there want to just uh, hear of a, a cool story about um, Storis, I mean, you could go on YouTube and watch the video. It's it's kind of nerdy, but, you know, obviously it's close to my heart. So, yeah, so that's how I reached out to John. We really yeah. appreciate you sit down with us and talk to us about a, a bunch of different stuff, not just hunting. We want to talk about camo, kind of where it's gone over the last 10 years, how drastic patterns have changed. You know, it used to be like real tree, mossy oak breakup, kind of crappy patterns. Yeah. I killed deer with them though. Yeah. <laughs> and so now we're seeing guys wearing sit cut pants just out and about walking down the street because it's a fashion statement yeah it's a fashion statement they're comfortable they're they're rugged i mean they just don't make them in tall guy sizes for me skinny tall guy sizes <laughs> so give us a little background about how you've seen camo development change kind of just over your time at sitka over the last nine years and maybe a more pointed question would be like, has it changed so much in the last 10 years because of our understanding of animals or because technology has gotten better? What's really driving that change? I actually got into understanding the science of camel when I was in the military and there was a program called the Personal Signature Management Program. So this is when the military was starting to adopt digitized camo. The Army had their ACUs. Special operations specifically for the Navy did not have anything yet. And so I got involved in a very small part with this PSM program. And so 
kind of had a pretty good understanding and actually worked with some of the same scientists that Sika had when they came up with the first optifade pattern. So certainly understood science, got to Sitka, nothing really had changed there. I realized that for the big game hunter, you know, especially where you guys live and, and where I came from, like we needed a green pattern. Um, not that there was anything wrong with open country and the science was valid. And I'll get to, I'll, I'll, I'll put a bow on this at the end, but at the end of the day, the hunter wants to feel confident, needs to feel confident. And, and part of that comes from what they wear and they've got to believe that it's going to work for them. Yeah. So I, I reached out and, and long story short, I was the one that, that was the catalyst to developing the subalpine pattern which is the green big game pattern. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Probably the most popular pattern, right? Yeah, I would tell you that what I call the camo wars are the expectation now in the industry is if you're a, a startup hunting brand out of your garage, you have to have your own proprietary camo. And I'm not disparaging anyone's camo, but the reality is none of them, none of them, but the Sitka pattern is based on any kind of animal vision or science. Really what it's become is an industrial an industrial design project for these companies to come up with something that looks different so that it attracts a consumer that is probably at some level based on some macro and micros that that are part of, you know, just sound general camouflage. Sure. You know, highlights and lowlights, etc. But for the most part, it's just an art contest. So except for, for the Sika Optifade, all of it's basically just industrial design. Um, I, I think some of it works better than others. Um, there's a there's a company that actually has done quite a few of the most popular hunting patterns out there. And really, they're kind of just art students in some regard. So, you know, I would tell you at the end of the day, what matters most is that the hunter feels confident in what they're wearing and that it works for them. I'll tell you that with subalpine and, and, and open country in the past, like I've, I've been able to get away with things, movement specifically in front of animals, come to full draw with my bow or, you know, need to step left or right half a step. And, you know, you'll hear people say this, but it looks like the animals looking through them and not at them. And so if that gets the extra hmm. half a second or second, to, you know, execute a shot. But I've got lots of different stories to include spot spotting and stalking Miriam turkeys um, with a bow. You know, that if, if that's what you feel comfortable with, that's great. I think the trend you're seeing now because of this glut of camo in the market is hunting solids is a huge, huge growing part of the industry. Some brands don't even have camo. That's not because they don't believe in camo, no matter what they say. The reality is they don't have a production process refined enough to even be able to print the fabrics. So they, luckily, they've been able to benefit from the, the, the solid industry. But at the end of the day, like I said, it's whatever the hunter feels comfortable with. And I don't think that's going to change no matter how long, you know, we continue to hunt. I, you're kind of raising a couple of questions for me. First one's kind of a yes or no question. Does does uh, Sitka sell like a wrap of their camo pattern for like putting on a rifle or anything? No, we do have we do have some okay. brands that we've licensed the patterns to ground blind shotguns, rifles, sure. optics. And then uh, in states where hunter's orange is required, how much of your camo is just thrown out the window? We offer some we offer some styles, jackets, vests, and even a hunting vest in blaze orange. Yeah, but most of the time when you're doing that, most of the time. You're using a weapon, a rifle that's got a longer engagement distance, so isn't as okay. critical. Now, maybe being in a tree stand, like in your guys' case, maybe being in a tree stand waiting for a blacktail or rosy to walk by, it, it probably detracts a little bit. But animals generally, ungulates, deer, elk, seeing a blue spectrum. So if the color is not in a blue spectrum, then it's not going to stand out. But what they will see is movement. So if you have a big solid piece of orange they don't see orange but they might see that orange move and it might attract them sooner than if you were wearing all camo well that's super interesting then so you can develop a pattern that because of the pattern you're less visible to elk but because of the color orange you'd be more visible to a person 
kind of cool how it can work both ways. Yeah, if you have if you have patterns in the blue spectrum, our scientists are telling us that the blues are enhanced. They almost some of them almost might glow in the dark, so to speak, to to an ungulate. That there's a lot there's a lot of science yeah. to it. I've always heard that too about blue. Yeah. Another thought that popped into my head as you were talking, like you have all these brands creating camos that are mostly for catching sales and looking good to people. Has that kind of twisted? Sitka's arm where you guys have to incorporate some sort of design that's attractive to people in your camos or are you guys just so well known and respected that people don't care if it doesn't look as good? Yeah, well, I mean, our sales would tell us that it's not an issue right now. I mean, the last pattern we came out with was subalpine in 2017. So it's not like we launch patterns often. Got it. Yeah. Part of that is because of the science, right? So if the science doesn't evolve, there's really not much we can do. Um, You can tweak little things here or there, but at the end of the day, like it is a fashion show, right? It is, it is a contest. And and so you can't make a, a camo that's not attractive to the consumer. The, the balancing act is making it attractive to the consumer, making them feel confident in it, making it look like the surroundings are in, but actually doing something to help them be more successful. And that's where the kind of art and science come together and cross. So in a world where you did not need to worry about the art of it at all, could you design a far better camo or is the art side of it that's attractive to people not detracting from it that much? Yeah, no, I, we couldn't, I don't think we can develop anything better than what we've got right now. There's a lot, the macro and micro that I've talked about, there's also the, the density and color, right? So if white's the lightest color and black's the, the darkest, it's how you blend different colors to build contrast or depth into a pattern. So based on the science, we know that the animal doesn't see two-dimensional, he's seen three-dimensional. And so you don't look like, you know, the whole idea of any kind of camouflage is to break up the human outline. And then I would say what we've been able to do is when you do that, if you blend into that background and have a 3D effect, that hopefully you can get away with some, some movement like we talked about, which is the hardest thing for an archery hunter is actually coming to full draw. Right. Yeah. And it's crazy how fast they snap to movement. Like I, there's been situations where I'm 300 yards away from a deer and it's sort of sprinkling. So it's a little bit misty outside and I'm in real tree camo and I just kind of turn my body and that deer's head snaps right to me. I don't know if, if other hunting species people experience that, but at least hunting our black tailed deer out here, I've had several different occasions where hundreds of yards away, the deer will see me move. And I, I don't think that they're able to identify me as a human, but they'll definitely freeze and just stare and try to see what it is they're looking at. Right. Well, you know, they're a prey animal. So their eyes are on the side of their head. The scientists tell us that their pupil is not like ours. It's not a round pupil. It's more like a goat. Yeah, even far more than than um, than oval. And so with with the with the eyes on the side of their head, their peripheral vision's like something like 270 degrees. But they can stand there, and if something moves across that pupil, they catch it. Whereas we, as, as predators, have to turn our head to focus on specific areas, and we start to lose our peripheral vision. So the, the thing you're really trying to initially, quote, fool the animal with is movement, right? So bringing the rifle up, bringing the shotgun up, bringing the bow up, taking the step to the left or right to get that shot past the tree – you know, that, that animal is built, you know, nature's designed those animals to survive and pick up movement very, very quickly. Yeah. yeah. So the unglet vision, you know, you, you bring that up. So why do you differentiate camo for a white tail versus say camo for an elk? Yeah, I, I would tell you that as a general statement, we've made it more complicated than it needs to be. But I think that's in hindsight. But I'll tell you the reason is... Or the reason was, it's because of what we'll call engagement angle, right? So specifically for whitetail, elevated two is the pattern, right? So they built that pattern specifically for a deer looking up, and I won't remember the exact angle or degree, right? But looking up 
at a human with no trees or no leaves on the tree. So you have a, a big background that's bright and that you would be silhouetted against. And so it was trying to blend into the tree and not show that movement. Whereas when we develop subalpine, it's a ground-based, generally speaking, it was a ground-based pattern. I think what we've come to discover is it's not a ground-based pattern. It's a vegetated pattern. So where I built subalpine to be used on the ground, what we've discovered, and I'm kind of giving you guys a little bit of a hint here, but what we've discovered is that if it's a tree background, so say where you guys live, and there's leaves on the trees, subalpine is an exceptional pattern for deer if you've got a leafy background. It doesn't matter what the engagement angle is. It's what the the environment around you is. Um, and then open country was designed for very open, sparse environments, not a lot of vegetation where the macros are much bigger and the micros are less and much smaller because you're trying to move basically with the animal looking at you from 500 yards and you need to get to 300 yards to get behind a boulder as an example to take a shot so they're all built with intent wow yeah so that so i i see you're saying that it's not necessarily about the different vision between an elk and a whitetail it's more about the situation that the hunter hunter finds themselves in the terrain and the angles and all that kind of stuff the 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 elk and the deer from what we know are are basically the same they see the same. Now, mind you, there hasn't been as much study on an elk, right? White-tailed deer, but they're extrapolating with the same type of eye, the same type of animal, you know, generally speaking. Um, so it's not species uh-huh. specific. It's environment. It's, and I mean, an elk's eye is way bigger. So I wonder just how different and their heads higher off the ground too. What about bear and cougar? You know, cause cougar, they have some crazy, not only night vision, but they I mean, crazy vision during the day. Uh, and then, you know, you have a bear, which its primary sense is going to be its nose. So. And their eyes are small. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if we know anything about, if we do, it's not coming to my mind, but I don't know how much scientists have studied bear. I certainly don't think they've studied cougar that I know of. Um, I can tell you my experience hunting bears is bears do have small eyes and you can get away with a lot of movement because of that. They're also a predator, right? So their eyes are on the front of their head. I think we know more about turkey vision than we do bear cougar. They have exceptional <laughs> yep. vision. They see in color. You know, it, it's quite, quite the feat yeah. to fool them. Has Sitka gotten a lot of attention from turkey hunters? Yeah, it's it's been a huge it's been a huge success so far. Cool. Yeah, you see turkey on the wall behind me. Yeah, That's a, it was my first turkey. <laughs> America, second only to whitetail, is turkey hunters as far as number of hunters. Um, you know, time time a field and and states hunted. You know, it's mm. second to whitetail. Yeah. Mm. Which is crazy. It's just a big bird, but you know, yeah. it's a big bird that's fun to hunt. <laughs> it's it's fun to hunt though, but it's easy to get tags. They're relatively inexpensive. You don't need a, a packer to get you and your turkey out of the woods. You can hunt multiple states. It's great for kids. It's great for first time hunters. It's just a fantastic animal and they eat really well. So it's got everything going for it. Yeah, that's true. I never really thought of all those factors. All I know is that the private landowners are always trying to get people to shoot them off all their land (laughs) so if you don't mind uh i have some blacktail specific questions for you yeah we really hope that people who listen to this show will get at least one thing that pertains specifically to their situation and i do believe that here in the pacific northwest especially extreme pacific northwest i'm going to narrow this down really really far we're talking the coastal mountain range up the Pacific Northwest coast. So we're looking uh, maybe Northern California, but really Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, this wet and doesn't really get that cold. I'll say during my blacktail seasons, I've only seen snow on the ground twice. Uh, It's not a very common thing. So really we're, we're hitting that 30 to 35 degrees for the most part. And then it gets into the forties you know, during the day, another challenge with it is, and this is with a lot of Western hunting, you know, you're hiking in the morning to get to your spot. And uh, so you're getting really hot. Then you sit still for at least uh, a lot of the blacktail hunting out here, you get to a good glassing point and then you'll sit there for two hours 
and just wait as the sun's rising. Then, you know, we can't forget that it's raining the whole time. It's just constant rain, whether it's mixed rain and then no rain, which is some of the best time to be out there, or it's just pouring down rain. You're walking around in super thick, grabby brush all day long, and the then you're still hunting, which uh, are you familiar with what people mean when they say still hunting? Yep. So, you know, you're slowly moving through the woods, very, very slow looking, trying to sneak up on a deer before it sees you. There's some problems that arise with this type of hunting that we do out here. It really sucks to change every two hours, especially when it's raining. And so those times between glassing and then hiking to the next glassing point and then glassing more, it's raining the whole time. So you have to have some sort of rain gear on. But when you're walking, you want to take off your warm stuff and then you get to your spot. You want to put it back on and that. I don't know if that's avoidable at all. My rain gear tears pretty much every season. Um, and I, I haven't invested the money into super thick, durable rain gear yet, which I, I need to this year. I've decided I've always bought the really thin ultralight rain gear that I could slip over anything. Um, but I'm kind of changing my idea there. I always end up shivering when I'm glassing. And so from hearing these challenges in this scenario that coastal blacktail hunters find them in, I think the biggest distinguisher, like we've said, is the fact that it's not extremely cold and it's just raining the whole time in thick brush. Yeah. So you're going to have to keep me on track because I could spend the rest of the time we have together just <laughs> talking about this. I mean, an entire podcast yeah. or two. Yeah, I've spent years, decades actually living and working and training in, in these types of environments that you describe. And although I haven't specifically hunted Oregon or Washington, South Central, Southeastern Alaska, British Columbia, right? Kodiak Island, Ketchikan, Prince of Wales. To me, this is the, 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 the environment you described is the most challenging and uncomfortable mm. for the human, yep. period. And there's a lot of reasons why. But when it's cold, colder, oftentimes it's a very arid environment. So there's not a lot of moisture and it's cold. So I can bundle up and my clothing system works as prescribed. When it's warmer out, to hot, that doesn't require a lot of clothing. And generally, we understand intuitively how to cool off, right? But when you work in an environment where let's just say it's plus or minus five above and below freezing, there's a bunch of things working against us and any kind of modern clothing system. I don't care whose it is. And so when you talk about a clothing system, a technical clothing system specifically, when you boil it down, what does it have to do? What, it, what are you paying for? What is the performance you're looking for? It is all about managing moisture. Now, the moisture comes from two directions. It either comes from the outside in, in yeah, rain, yeah. in your case, could be snow, or moisture from the inside out in the form of sweat. So you talked about both of those. Because it's raining, if it's raining, or it could have rained 24 hours ago, but if the vegetation from your chest yep. down is completely and soaked, ferns, is. and grass, and it always is, you have to put on some type of rain gear, right? So no soft shell pant, DWR on anything is really going to stop um, that rain from saturating. If you don't where the proper system inside of that rain gear, you get what you described where you sit down to glass and you shiver and then you, you get up and you move and you sweat and then you sit down and you glass and you shiver. So there's lots of reasons why there's basically four ways the body loses heat, radiation, evaporation, conduction, and convection. So depending on what you got going on, it could be a combination of all four, yeah, yeah. right? When you look at the environment. The one you describe, you essentially have inside your clothing system, a hundred percent humid or saturated environment and the exterior atmosphere, the, the weather outside is basically the same. So if they're a hundred percent saturated or even if it's not raining, but the dew point 
is such that they're basically at equilibrium. Moisture can't go anywhere. So I could have the best Sitka system on, the best rain gear in the world, right, that NASA built. But if I don't have anywhere for that to go, physics is physics. And so I can't really push it out. And it also probably can't come in. But either way, I'm damp outside and I'm damp inside. How do we control that? So the way we control that, the way we help manage that is we have to have a system that dries incredibly fast and efficiently because it's not a question of if you get wet. It's a question of when you get wet, how do you dry out and how do you manage that? And so you manage that with base layers, you manage that with what you wear under the rain gear, and then you manage that with the rain gear, right? I like to say rain gear is like car insurance. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to wear it, but everybody's glad they invested yeah. in the best they could because when they oh, yeah. it, they need it, right? You know, you can choose to buy a less expensive rain gear and replace it every year. I'm not saying you can't do that, but I'm, I'm saying in that environment, it's very difficult to get any rain gear to actually work. I don't care what any brand says or any manufacturer, breathability doesn't trump hmm. physics, right? So when I was in coastal Alaska, hunting brown bear, moose, blacktail, rosies, you name it, um, the question you have to ask yourself either when you leave the truck or when you're getting out of your tent is, what do I think the weather's going to be? What do I think the conditions are going to be, right? Sometimes I'll choose to say, well, you know what? I'm going to be wearing my rain gear every single minute of the day. And I'm literally going to have nothing on underneath that rain gear, Mm. but my base layer. I'm not going to have hunting pants. I'm not going to have a mid layer. I'm not going to, I'm going to have nothing but a base layer because I know that one, it's going to manage moisture and dry quick when I stop. And two, when I do stop and I'm not moving and generating heat, I can put something on underneath that rain gear if it's still raining, right? Depending on what that is, just say a puffy jacket to trap my body heat, dry out that base layer, keep my skin dry, trap my body heat. The rain gear is going to protect me from from the wind and, and the wetness, right? Or I sit there and say it's not raining, but it's a humid atmosphere. It's kind of muggy. It's that 32, 35-ish. I can't put on a lot of clothes because I know that as soon as I start to move under burden, I'm going to sweat my system out. And so I want oh, yeah. to dress what's called comfortably cool, which is to wear as little clothing as possible. Now, in this case, you would have to wear hunting pants, et cetera, right? Understanding, though, that I'm just trying to manage my sweat so I don't dehydrate myself, that I don't overly wet out the system, but understanding that as soon as I stop to get behind the glass, as soon as I stop for a 10-minute break or do a map study or whatever the case may be, that I'm going to have to immediately put on a layer to insulate and protect myself, trap that body heat, and let the system dry out, which is where the efficient part of the system comes from. And so it's a constant, conscious effort of on, off, regulating my pace, which is one thing we can control, how quickly we move, how much we sweat, and what we put on allows us to do that. And so um, although it's the most complicated, it's certainly not a environment for a, quote, beginner right, to, to understand and, 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 and fully uh, take advantage of. But I would tell you that in that environment, because it's so difficult, that that's where a technical clothing system used properly absolutely provides the most bang for the buck. So is there a system that you guys have that seems like it would be best for this type of environment? and Or maybe do you recommend taking pieces of different systems to create the best sort of custom system for this type of terrain and environment. Yeah, I'll give you a I'll give you a Sika system only because I know the names, and somebody can write these down, and then they can go to brand X or Y, whichever they favor, and look for something similar. But I'll I'll tell you the why behind it. So the the very first and most critical layer of any clothing system is the base layer. So this is a layer that goes directly next to your skin, right? Some may call it long underwear. 
It's super thin. Generally speaking, you want something that's long sleeve, right? And all it's supposed to do is lay next to your skin and pull moisture away from your skin. So in a hot environment, if you have nothing else on top, it's going to move that moisture off your skin and through evaporative cooling, you're going to cool off. But in a cold environment or the damp environment you describe, moving that moisture off your skin to the second or third layer, who cares if that's wet, that will cut down and limit that chill or that shivering that you talked about, right? But if the layer next to our skin is damp, it's going to take us a while to shiver and generate heat and move that moisture away. Yeah, that's a huge tip. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. How about how the even just getting it out to the mid layer, even if it's not completely evaporating? Environment, I'm, I'm a huge proponent, even though we just launched a new wool program, I'm a huge proponent of synthetic base layers because they dry incredibly quick. And although they stink over time, in that damp environment, nothing works as good as a synthetic base layer, mm. right? So like a synthetic lightweight hoodie or crew and synthetic long johns or a boxer, I think wool works exceptionally well, but it's going to take longer to dry and it kind of steams itself dry, which is not a feeling that I particularly care for. And it's going to take 15, 20, 30 minutes longer to dry, generally speaking, than a synthetic base layer. Okay. From there, what I would use is I would use a thin pair of light hiking pants, like a pair of Ascent pants, which are Cordura nylon. I could get them wet and walk around the house as we're doing this podcast and in 45 minutes they're going to be dry, right? So that's the kind of efficiency I'm looking for. If I get a really thick, dense pair of hunting pants and get them wet, it's not going to dry as quick, right? Yep. And and you're talking, that's your, over your base layer or is that your base layer that you're talking about? Over my base layer. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Super, if it's super hot out or I'm going to be moving all day, I'm just going to put the base layer on and put my rain gear right over top of it. Yeah. Because I've been using a merino base layer. And there, there's a lot to this, right? It's like, what's the weight? What's the density, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And just as a general statement, synthetic manages moisture better than merino. Merino's got a lot of plus sides. That's just not one of them. Sure. Yeah. Then I want some type of kind of active mid-layer. So think a heavyweight fleece or what we call an ambient jackets, something like that. So in cold environments, so let's say it is 30. So it's below freezing. You're moving. You can't move, hike it, uh, hike fast enough to generate enough body heat to stay warm. That's a nice layer to have. And then when you stop, a puffy jacket is absolutely life-saving. It's one of the pieces of clothing that I consider a part of my survival system. A puffy jacket traps that heat. So let's just say that I'm moving in my base layer, and I'll get the rain gear here in a minute. I've got my rain gear on. We're going to stop for two, three hours in glass. I'm going to take that rain jacket off. I'm going to put a synthetic insulated puffy jacket on right over top of that base layer, put the rain jacket back over top to protect it from the rain and the wind. And that is going to trap my body heat in all that loft. And that moisture is going to move right off my base layer into that insulation, which is built to manage moisture I've been out five, six, 10 days, and that jacket just keeps getting a little heavier and a little damper every day, and it just keeps me warm. Wow, okay. But without that, you're going to shiver, right? Without that, that moisture, your body heat, which you need to be very stingy with, is just going to dissipate to the atmosphere. The only way to get warm is to move or to eat or a combination of both, right? So I'm going to lose my focus. We're not going to glass. We're not going to pay attention to what we're doing. We're just going to want to keep hiking, et cetera, right? Yeah. Could could I ask a question really fast? Um, With these different layers, do they need physical content, like the fitment of them? Is this something where they're all, and and I I can see how that would be hard to avoid, but maybe there's a situation where someone has a looser mid-layer. How tight? to the between layers do you need them to be the only one the the one that's the most crucial is the base layer you don't want it skin tight but you want it form fit because the most surface area or contact you have the material in your skin the more efficient it's going to be everything else can fit somewhat loose and any quality clothing technical clothing brand is going to build them for that application got it okay yeah yeah that makes sense so because i was kind of imagining if there's too much of a gap between uh, the layers, it would be harder for 
moisture to uh, go between them, but I guess that's not really needed. Well, not to go t- too deep because for time, but the farther away from your skin or your body that moisture gets, right? And every layer it goes through, if my body's 98.6, every layer it goes through, it's cooling down. Well, like I told you, at a certain point, if it's 100% saturated inside and outside, it can't go anywhere. You'll actually get into a situation where you're feeling fine, you're warm, you're dry, at least on your skin, and that moisture's moved all the way through, hit the inside of the rain gear, no matter what what kind of rain gear you have, and if it's at equilibrium, it will literally sit there and stop. Sometimes it'll get so cold, it'll freeze on the inside of the rain gear. Hmm. And so you have to understand this. And sometimes when it stops raining, a great thing to do is just take off your rain gear and air out your system, right? If it stops, starts raining again, or we're going to put on our rain gear to go still hunt through the ferns, then put the rain gear back on. But it's this constant managing of your moisture and your body heat. It's simple. It's not easy to do, but it's simple at its most basic. And so this is an environment you guys live in that is very difficult to stay comfortable. But once you figure it out, we did this thing in the military called the rewarming drill where we'd literally jump in frozen lakes or rivers and get our clothing system completely wet and teach guys how to dry it out Wow! in either a Bible or combat environment. That is what a technical clothing system does. What I'm talking about really refers to worst case scenarios, or in your case, like that environment where you don't have a lot going for you. What you really need is some quality layers, but more importantly, the understanding of how to use them. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, that's super helpful information. I'm paying attention to the time and I have more questions I could ask. And I'd like to ask, but you know, well, we have a follow up uh, podcast to this. Oh yeah. That'd be awesome. I mean, I used to teach an eight hour course just on this alone. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I'll save my other organ specific questions for another time. How's that? Okay. So thank you for your insight on that. Super appreciative. And I'm definitely going to take a second look at my, my kit for this coming up fall. And I'm, I'm definitely getting the vision. So now it's time for the question of the hour to end the show out. So it's clear that you love being out in the mountains, pushing yourself to the limits. You know, it it seems to be a serious passion for you. And even beyond the gear talk, people have heard you on other shows, have heard you talk a lot about hunting. This is the number one question that we want to ask. And our whole show is set up to be a platform for people like you to share your true intentions. John, what are the spiritual motivations behind your life in the outdoors? Yeah, uh, it's an awesome question, right? And as you guys can probably tell, nobody's ever told me I was short-winded. Um, <laughs> so yeah, there's a lot there. So, you know, the first thing that, that interested me was, you know, as a young as a young guy was, you know, testing myself, wanting adventure, wanting to write my own stories, you know, I mean, read Outdoor Life and Field and Stream, but I wanted to be the person that had those those experiences as well. Um, and I certainly have gotten that right over the years. I've been, been very fortunate. I would tell you that I never, and it doesn't matter if I'm hunting, skiing, climbing, whatever, I never feel as connected to, uh, the world we live in and God or a spirit or a higher being than when you're out there. Cause you truly get immersed in it and you, you realize that especially hunting, but, but even like skiing, like I'm, I'm tuned into the, to the snow crystals and the wind, right. And, and, and the, the wind through the trees and, but, but hunting, you're like clued in all these animals and like the dirt and the different smells and the sounds. And like, you realize that there's, there's a whole world out there that's much bigger than the one we like to think is the only one that matters, which is, you know, our little world. Yeah. So it, it, I think it's amazing to go out there, be humbled, understand that this stuff exists and goes on if, if we are aware of it or not. Yeah. And, you know, it kind of becomes like, you, you know, my, my church or the place where I can go and just like decompress a little bit and put things back into perspective. I, I truly love the challenge of training and preparing and testing myself and all those things. Um, I love the animals. Some hunters or some people that don't hunt, they don't understand that, like, we love the animals. I mean, all oh, yeah. we talked about in the beginning of the show, it's like, 
we're out there to protect these animals, but we also want to kind of pit our our skills against them because I always wanted to feel very, I wanted to be very self-sufficient, right? And and have those skills that, although we don't need them a lot anymore, to understand that, that I still have them and that I was capable of. And then being able to bring that meat home and share it with family and friends and like understand that that cycle of life that very few people truly understand. When you put all that together, it becomes this very powerful, emotional and spiritual experience, right? And I've just where I live now, uh, you know, and where I, what I've done and where I've lived, you know, the mountains are kind of my church, so to speak. But I love in November because of where I grew up in Ohio, like I've got to go sit in a tree stand and hunt whitetails, right? And <laughs> like slowing down and, and not worrying about as, you know, as much about my fitness and my food and, and, you know, all these things we just described about clothing systems and just be able to take it all in and enjoy it. And that's like more of a mental challenge and a physical. To me, it's just, you know, I, I, I in a lot of regards, I feel sorry for people that haven't had the opportunity to experience it. There's a couple of things you said that really resonate with me like how you talked about the love of the animal and that's the thing that a lot of non-hunters don't understand like you said but how, how can we love these creatures that we're going out to kill but man that's anytime I hear someone talking about like whack them and stack them or you know just going out there to kill if it's brown it's down kind of mentality it makes me very uncomfortable because there's something so intimate when I do successfully harvest an animal after spending all this time studying it, spending years gathering knowledge and, and know-how on how to even get into the situation where you get to harvest an animal, then not only the accomplishment of that, but to recognize that you have taken the life of this living creature. You get to eat that, the meat that you procured for yourself in the wilderness and uh you don't think about that the the analogy we always use is you don't think about that when you microwave a hot pocket you know yeah and how i don't think there's a more intimate relationship you can have with an animal than harvesting it and eating it and tapping into that primal part of your identity as a human being yeah i mean you know we learn how to speak their language right we learn their traits and habits and what they eat and where they are at certain times of year and what different weather and moon phases do to them like you know it, it's it's a it's a lifelong study and and you know people think that oh you're you know you're a deer hunter so you know how to hunt elk or you're an elk hunter so you know how to hunt bear and it's like man it's those animals are so totally different yeah their behaviors and, and, you know, their, their senses and things like that. Right. So yeah, it, to me, it's, it's, it's far more than, I mean, this is not a, you know, and you'll hear people talk about this, but you know, this isn't a sport to me. This isn't an activity. This isn't something I do on my vacation. Like it really begins to be part of who you are. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm constantly either training about it, thinking about it, um, you know, trying to educate others about it, to go and have these amazing experiences, you know, to me anyways, just enrich my life and, and help me get through some of the times where I'm like, man, I do not want to be sitting in this office for the next five. <laughs> and, and then another thing that you talked about too, which I'm, I'm a Christian, I believe in a God and I feel so aware and connected with God when I'm out there in the woods and for me it's seeing the transformation of a leaf budding and growing it's seeing the sunsets the sun rising it's seeing a fawn grow into a deer it it just amazes me and point to me points to the glory of god you know and i, I heard you mention that you also see that some sort of god figure in it you know and, and i I don't think I've met someone yet who spent a life in the outdoors who has experienced those amazing sites where things are so much bigger and out of your control than you, um, who hasn't had some sort of an idea of something bigger than them just from observing that over a lifetime. Yeah. I've never felt as small and inconsequential and humble as, you know, walking into the mountains with a bow in my hand or getting dropped off by a float plane in the middle of nowhere and that true silence you hear for the first time ever in your life. Yeah. Just realize how ridiculous a notion it is to think that, you know, 
my, my life or like what we're doing on this earth or, you know, some BS at work like actually matters because in the grand scheme of things, it matters not at all. Um, and I think that's I think that's good. I think that's healthy for humans to kind of to kind of understand and learn about yourself and that you're not maybe as speaking for myself is, 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 you know, as cool or as talented as I think I am. <laughs> yep. It's got a great way of, of constantly humbling, you know? So, um, you know, it's evolved, it's evolved from just wanting to go seek adventure and, and be self-sufficient to, you know, far much more of a, a spiritual, you know, experience. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, that is something that you learn as you get into hunting and as you become consumed by it, right? Is you start to really understand and sense the spiritual aspect of it. And it changes your identity and who you are. And even, even physically, like you begin eating wild game and your body builds itself out of wild game protein. It's a, uh, it's just amazing how encompassing it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great way of life, you know, and I think all of us are, you know, encouraging other people to go out and discover it for themselves. Well, John, do you have any uh, final thoughts or Eric before we wrap this up? How can, if people wanted to, to follow you on social media or look at your website, uh, go ahead and plug some of those things for yourself so that uh, people can kind of learn more about John Barklow and what you do and just your your vast background. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. So I'm on Instagram. I'm kind of a begrudging participant, <laughs> but I try to post something educational once a week to my yeah. profile. It's at Jay Barklow. I also have a website, Knowledge from Storms. So that's where people can go and read all my newsletters or subscribe. I've got a trip planning PDF. There's a link to my first course I built with Outdoor Class. So it's an it's a video course. It's an online video course. Um, backcountry mission planning. And really my, my whole platform is to give back because I realize that I've been, I've been blessed to have amazing experiences and gotten to live the life that, that I dreamed as a kid. However, it transpired, I got here. And if I didn't give back that I was being very selfish. And, you know, I think that coming at it from an, um, a, an instructor teaching perspective and just trying to pass on information and not trying to be a sales tool. Yeah. You know, somebody can contact me and it doesn't matter what they're wearing or where they're going. I can help them with what they've got that, you know, that's that's been incredibly fulfilling for me since I've left the military and I've only been doing it a few years. And then, of course, you know, the, the Sitka job that I have during the day, there's lots of content and stuff on there. We just did one me and a guy named Chris just on base layers, right? And the pros and cons of wool and synthetic. So if somebody were to just Google my name, I think they'd find more than enough information that, that hopefully helps them and, and probably probably gets them to write a bunch of questions down and say, okay, well, now where do I go from here? Well, we really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to come and, and to sit down and talk to us for, you know, the last hour, hour and a half. I've mentioned this before we were recording, but uh, I think if, if you compiled all the podcast episodes that you've been on and released one a week, you could probably have a few years worth of material just on how much information you've put out there. So thank you for sharing that information with the world and we're all, we're all better for it. So I appreciate what you're doing. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And like I said, we, we might have to circle back and do a couple more if, if people start asking you guys questions. I had a, I had a friend, uh, I spent 20 some years in the Navy with this guy and when he retired, he became a preacher out in Virginia. And he, he told me we were talking about this a couple of years ago. And uh, I was just like, man, I just feel like I'm repeating myself sometimes, Todd. And he's like, hey, he goes, here's what I've learned. He says, I have to say the same message 10 times for everyone in <laughs> here at once. So even though you feel like you're repeating yourself, not everyone's heard the message or gotten the information. And so it was the same thing I used to tell my instructors you know, when we're getting ready to go out in horrendous weather and run the same exercise and, you know, the guys could do it in their sleep and they were experts at what they did. And I'm like, hey, this might be your 10th time, but this is the students first and we have to approach it that way. Mm, yeah. Yeah. If people want to listen to podcasts and me run my mouth, there's definitely lots of content out there. <laughs> well, we enjoy it. Yep. Awesome. Well, so Western Oregon people look up uh, John Barklow and 
check out what he has to offer. John, thanks again for being on. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, guys. I really enjoyed the uh, I really enjoyed the the conversation. Thanks for reaching out. Take care.